This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Sarah Smith, Democratic candidate for Congress in Washington's 9th. Thanks for coming on and congrats on making it to the general election. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And I am biased. So full disclosure to our (laughs) listeners, Sarah's a brand new Congress candidate. I serve as Chief Policy Director at Brand New Congress. We've worked together in the past, but hopefully... I will be just as tough on her as I am with anyone else. With that being said, I'll start out with a relatively easy question. At this point in the election cycle, I've only really been talking to Democratic nominees, but you are one of two Democratic candidates who will be appearing Mm -hmm. on the general election ballot in your district. What's the story there? Yes. So the way that Washington system works, um, it's going to sound really familiar for folks in California, um, but we have a top two primary system. So it's referred to as the colloquialism is a jungle primary. And basically what that means is if you pay the fee or you you obtain the the number of signatures, you can do either or. You can be on the ballot under any party title. We don't actually have party registration or anything like that. Um, So we can just get our ballots in the mail and everybody's ballots will list all the candidates from across the board for every party. Um, And then the people who get the top two vote getters, the two uh, candidates that get the the most, the highest number of votes, they move into the general. So that means that we and the incumbent um, got the two highest vote counts in the primary election. And so with the incumbent being a Democrat, why challenge him? Why a blue on blue race? Because we decided to challenge Adam because he's been in office for about 22 years. And in that 22 years, I keep receipts from GovTrack.us, um, only two pieces of legislation of his has, have been enacted. And to me, that screams a level of inefficacy that we're in an era where we need to combat it. Um, he's never really been strong on anything as far as healthcare goes. He's never really been a strong advocate for anything beyond the ACA until this year or until last year. My apologies. Uh, he's never really been a strong fighter for students. He actually was a yay vote on the bill that redefined the credit hour and that made it easier for schools like ITT Tech to take advantage of students. Um, he also supports expanding the Pell Grant and has not really mentioned education for all or anything. Um, he doesn't really take a strong stance anywhere in his platform on anything. And I think that this is a district that sidles right up next to the seventh with Pramila Jayapal, who's one of the strongest, loudest, most progressive representatives that we've got in the House. And it's not good enough for one of the deepest, darkest, youngest, bluest districts in the country to have passive representation that drags their feet, that waits to the last minute. And the only thing that he's never waited to jump on board with is war legislation. He voted in favor of the Iraq War. He voted in favor of the Patriot Act. He voted in in favor of CISPA, of FISA. Um, He voted in favor of selling the Saudi Arabians cluster bombs, which is a really sore spot for me, especially in light of the kids that were just murdered um, by Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Raytheon Arms, who are two of his top donors. Uh, He also is the number one recipient of PAC money from Washington state as far as federal representatives go. And I think he's the I believe he's the third highest recipient in the entire Democratic Party in the House. 
So you you kind of beat me to my next topic, which is <laughs> sorry. His, no worries, it's perfect. It's his uh, foreign policy. He doesn't vote with Trump much, according to Five Thirty Eight. It's about thirteen percent of the time. But very notably to me, he does stand with Trump when it comes to military and defense appropriations bills. What would you do differently as a member of Congress? in terms of foreign policy. A lot. And so I know there was an article that recently came out saying progressives actually lack strong foreign policy platforms. That's not true of our campaign at all. I have thought a lot about foreign policy. This has been something near and dear and very important to me in this race um, because I have family overseas. My dad's not. He he he, uh, emigrated from the UK to come over to the United States. So our presence on the world stage has always been something that I've been very acutely aware of and what our reputation is. So foreign policy has always been really important to me. Um, Adam and I would do a lot differently. And he's actually, it makes me laugh because he's trying to co-opt my platform and my language, which I think is really funny that a 22-year incumbent Democrat is starting to try and and take bits and pieces of my foreign policy platform. Um, This is not, it's a really common sense foreign policy platform. The thing I always talk about is having a humanitarian military. And that requires a lot of different things. So one of the first things we need to do is when we look at the military budget, 60% of that military budget goes to private government contractors. They actually go to his top donors. And coincidentally, he has voted pretty regularly to increase the military budget on a regular basis, including the one that just came up in the House, which was, I believe, uh, $72 billion more than what Trump was asking for. Um, So one of the areas we have to start if we want to create a humanitarian military is Cut the amount of money that we're spending on private contractors. Eliminate the amount of money we're giving private contractors. His donors should not see a billion dollars in profit after a bombing in Syria. That's wrong. And we need to start putting our foot down and making sure that we recognize that it's wrong. Um, the other place that I want to go and I want to get into is our presence in Yemen. I've talked a lot about getting us out of Yemen, um, repealing the AUMF in its entirety, um, basically stopping us from acting like we are not complicit in the acts of, in the acts of violence Saudi Arabia is committing against Yemen. And we also can't be afraid to call it out for what it is. That's part of foreign policy as well. We can't be afraid to call out genocide when we see genocide, and that's what's happening with Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia. Is is committing complete inhumane human war crimes. This is just, its it really is a horrible situation and nobody's willing to call a spade a spade. And that's part of our obligation on the world stage as a major power, especially with the strongest military in the world. We have to call this stuff out when we see it. So another area that I want to pull our military into as well is I want to make sure that we're, a use of deadly force is the absolute last means that we try to utilize. When all other efforts have failed, that's when we should be considering going to war. We need to be dealing with war with the gravity it deserves. We've grown so attached to our culture of of war and our culture of violence that it's so inextricably linked into our economy that people are concerned when we talk about ending war, not about the peace that it would bring about, but about the industries it would get rid of. I've actually been told, oh, if we get rid of war, you know, Lockheed Martin is going to go under and a lot of people are going to be out of work. And the fact of the matter is, is we shouldn't rely on murdering people and bombing people and killing people to make a paycheck. There are better, more humane ways for us to earn an income than at the expense and the lives of other people around the world. We can do better. And one of the ways we can do better is if we shift our perspective with our military. So we are we're kind of a bully on the world stage. Honestly, we we're in I believe we have special ops in about 146 different countries. We have over 800 bases around the world. We're we're kind of a a bully on the world stage right now, especially with Donald Trump at the helm of that uh, at the helm of the, the military right now. But 
we need to shift our perspective. We have to stop looking at things as, oh, we have to bomb them before they bomb us. How about instead we take the perspective of going into the communities and building them up? When we utilize our military and we send us when we send our, our folks into different countries, we should go in first and foremost with how can we help the people at the bottom that need it the most? So we should be doing things like helping other nations build clean water sources, uh, helping other nations build wind farms and helping other nations invest in green energy and sustainability, building housing, building hospitals, helping them build up schools, helping them train teachers. Because when we talk about this idea of fighting terrorism, quote unquote, you can't fight a bad idea by dropping bombs on people. You can only fight a bad idea with a better alternative idea. And one of the number one ways that they sell that to us, one of the number one ways that they sell to us or that they sell to the people that America is evil and horrible is they point out all the destruction and death that we've participated in. And they're not wrong. We've participated in a lot of death and destruction around the world. When we go into these communities and we build them up and we elevate their people, we give them a better quality of life, we improve their standard of living, we improve their quality of lives. It's a lot harder to sell the idea that we're the bad guy. So not only are we going in and we're making the world better for other people, we're also nipping the bud in messages like America is horrible. We're also fighting back against that image we have in the rest of the world where we're at, we're the bail mean guy who goes and pushes little guys around. We can change our reputation just by changing how we view the usage of our military. We can stop using it to go in and invade and commit acts of violence and we can start using it to go in and build up other communities. We can scale back our military budget. We can stop spending money on private contractors. We can make sure that that money in our budget is actually going to our soldiers and equipping them properly so we don't have a military preparedness issue. And we don't have to rely on these additional war companies that are profiting off of our tax dollars and giving their executive bon their executives bonuses when bonds are dropped. We have a lot of opportunity to change our entire foreign policy outlook. And I believe firmly in a progressive foreign policy outlook. A humanitarian military is the only way to go forwards and the only way to improve our, our, our visuals nationwide. It's the only way we're going to improve how other people see us. So that is easily the best foreign policy answer I've ever gotten on this podcast. No offense to other guests. I'm passionate guests. about it. Yeah, I, I can tell just a little bit. Um, so lots to dig into there. Uh, first, would you support removing some or all of those military bases you mentioned from all of those countries? Yes. I would. And I know, you know, we everyone talks about needing to be needing to be present in all these areas and able to respond. And I do understand that. But these are nations with which we're allied, where we have a ton of bases. We have a ton of them in Germany. And Germany is our ally. If we if we have a, a moment where we need to be able to take off quickly, our allies will help us with that. We don't need our own bases in all these countries. And we have tons of them that are that are not being used, that are not fully staffed, that are basically just up and running to be up and running. We need to be closing these bases that are unnecessary and that aren't contributing to to world security, that aren't contributing to our national security, that aren't contributing anything to the world stage in any capacity. Um, we have a lot of opportunity to shut down a lot of these 800 bases. 800 is a lot. We don't need it. And we certainly don't need them in countries that are allied with us. And would you support ending foreign aid to nations like Saudi Arabia and Israel? Absolutely, I would. And I, I know it's contentious to say absolutely when we discuss Israel. But the fact is, is what's going on between Israel and Palestine, we have in, we have used that exact same example to invade other countries. And now we're tacitly, we're not even tacitly supporting it. We're directly funding it. We're directly helping them foster this, this genocidal idea that they need to destroy the Palestinians 
Palestinians and we've beaten them back so much and we've just been we've pretended that this problem isn't as big as it really is and we pretended that this problem isn't that bad and it's okay when they do it but it's not okay when any other country does it we need to be consistent with the way that we look at our morality we can't just pick and choose and cherry pick when it's okay for one nation to do it and when it's not okay for another nation to do it just because another country is our ally does not make that other country flawless when an ally of ours does something wrong it is our obligation to cut off that funding to them especially if we're helping to fund that especially especially we're helping to fund that crisis we're helping to fund that action it is our obligation to cut off that funding and to call them out for it without fear we have to dig our heels in for human rights violations like that and i think too many people are afraid to call it for what it is what kind of solution to the conflict in israel and the massacre of palestinians are you looking to support so i am a big supporter of a secular democratically elected single state solution that recognizes the rights of all people to self-determine under the purview of that nation's law and the reason that i am a single state supporter is because if you look at the geographical map there is literally no land left to give to the palestinian people there's not enough for them to have any kind of bargaining power because when you're creating two states it's important to recognize that each state needs some form of bargaining power against the other in order to have some kind of peaceful alliance or some some kind of, of, of peaceful opportunity. But the land that would be available to Palestine, does it's not enough for them to have any kind of leverage or competition. It's just going to perpetuate the same problem we have now. But a secular, democratically elected government under a single state that recognizes all people, it grants everybody the right to self-determine. And it's democratically elected, so it's of, of the people. It's really the only way forwards that makes any kind of sense in that region. And what could you do as a member of Congress to oppose any of the kind of U.S. interventionism, the CIA toppling of democratic regimes, interference in those elections, especially of states the U.S. perceives as socialist or communist? What would you do? What could Congress do to prevent that? One of the number one ways we could prevent that is we can repeal the authorized use of military force and we can return the power to declare war to Congress. Because the fact is, Congress abdicated this ability to declare war to the president. And then we we tried to say, oh, it's fine because it's under Barack Obama. And it seems like only Rep. Barbara Lee had the foresight to say this is setting a dangerous precedent because if it gets in the hands of a president that's going to abuse that power, it's going to be devastating for us. And she was right. Right now, the authorized use of military force with an extremely broad definition is in the hands of Donald J. Trump. And we can't risk that. Congress needs to step up and grow its backbone and repeal the authorized use of military force. That's one of the number one ways that we can prevent these interventionist type wars. Um, we also need legislation that limits the ability of the CIA and the FBI to go and perform those kind of interventionist activities as well. The fact is, is we do need some form of transparency in our government. And I, I recognize the, the value in working undercover. I recognize the value in working from the shadows. I understand all of that. I watched the whole Born Identity series. I totally understand understand. But here, we we really, really need to make sure that we are giving the people transparency. We are the, the ability to get us out of all these wars is one of the most popular stances across the country 
between both parties. Everybody is sick of 17 years in the Middle East. Everybody is sick of finding out, oh, okay, we're in another country and nobody knew about it. That kind of transparency is important for people to know. If if our tax dollars are going towards funding these wars and funding these regime toppling efforts, then the people deserve to know that where that money is going and how that money is being channeled. It's our tax dollars. We should be allowed to know how those tax dollars are being utilized. So you mentioned reining in the CIA and its intervention. How could you actually do that? What does that look like? So one of the best ways we can do that is we can focus on the Fourth Amendment and repealing the Patriot Act completely. And I know that, you know, the Patriot Act is expired and everything like that. But sunset provisions have been enacted. We rewrote them into things like FISA and CISPA. Um, and we need to repeal those laws. People deserve a right to privacy in their own homes. And we acknowledge the Fourth Amendment. That's going to rein in the CIA, the FBI, the NSA. It's going to rein in all of these groups that are going in and wiretapping without warrants, that are going in and listening in to people without warrants, that are confiscating things without warrants, that are going through people's phones without warrants. That's one of the best ways we can we can start, is start by restoring privacy to the American people. And one of the best ways that we can start fighting back against these interventionist wars is we need to have some kind of a of, of a accountability board. We need to have some kind of congressional oversight for these other organizations, because the power to declare war lies in the hands of Congress. And if another branch of government is violating that power, we need to have an oversight board that can hold them accountable for that. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on Korean peace efforts. We've seen Democrats pretty unanimously oppose them, I think kind of as a knee-jerk reaction to Donald Trump. Yeah. But they are supported by a strong majority of the South Korean people. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are if the South Korean people are the ones who are in majority support of peace efforts between North and South Korea, I think that should be first and foremost what we're elevating. It's easy to sit and and knee jerk respond and say Donald J Trump wants to do this, well then we can't do that because that's that's kind of how the how the mood is. But knee jerk politics is messing with people's lives. Knee jerk politics is hurting people. It's it's causing more and more people to experience suffering. And the fact is we don't live over there. We don't live in South Korea. They do. And if the South Korean people want to see peace efforts, we should be encouraging that as often as we can. And what kind of world is worse off when there's peace between two nations that have been at odds with one another for a long period of time for decades? I mean, the world is a better place when different nations are experiencing peace peaceful communications with one another. We should be fostering that. We shouldn't be trying to hamstring it. And I know that's probably not a popular opinion, but I mean, that's it, it really is just the most pragmatic, fundamental, morally correct decision to make on that uh, on that subject. And looking a bit closer to home, your fellow brand new Congress candidate, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has been getting a lot of flack from the right for talking about the colonial history of how the U.S. treats Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on how the United States treats its territories, Puerto Rico and otherwise? I am going to side with Alex on this one. I think she's completely right. The way we treat Puerto Rico is just modernized imperialism. And you can call it whatever you want. Call it a territory. Don't call it a colony. Whatever you want to call it. The fact remains that they are United States citizens who have no United States powers. 
they are United States citizens from whom we take tons of money every single year and we don't give it back to them when they need it. They don't receive any of the same benefits that a U.S. state does. They're not protected under Chapter 9 bankruptcies. Uh, They're still trying to fight for clean water and electricity that's consistent. I actually have a friend that lives down in Puerto Rico and he'll text me and be like, oh, another blackout again. And it's been over a year since Hurricane Maria. If if this were any other if this were an actual fully uh, fully named state, this would be out of the question. We would have been in there. They would have had a power grid back. Everything would have been taken care of and handled within a couple of months. But we treat Puerto Rico like it's a second class state because we've allowed it to be a second class state. But Alex is exactly correct. We tr- This is modernized imperialism. We need to be if we're going to call them a United States territory, we need to give them all the benefits of any actual fully ratified state. They need to be able to to be protected, to file bankruptcy when they desperately need it, to have to have fiscal autonomy over the way that their state spends their own money. They don't need Promesa. They don't need that kind of action for, from us to come in and tell them how to manage their money. And, uh, you know, my incumbent actually voted to lower the minimum wa- the minimum wage in Puerto Rico. They need to be treated exactly like every other state because otherwise it's literally just modern imperialism. And should those benefits, voting rights to voting U.S. senators, fiscal autonomy, should those apply to other U.S. territories as well? Absolutely. I think what's going on in in Puerto Rico and my stance on Puerto Rico applies to any United States territory. If they are a territory of the United States, they deserve all the power and ability of a state within the United States. We are out there. We are in these we are in these different countries. We are in these different territories. We're telling them, oh, you're one of us. You're taxed just like us. But then we give them none of the benefits of that taxation. And you know, I I hate to say it, but it's taxation without representation. And that's wrong. That's constitutionally wrong. There's no taxation without representation, but we do it to them anyway. If we're going to be involved in these territories, we're going to have these territories. We need to treat them like states and give them all the fully fully fledged rights of all the states. And speaking of taxation without representation, the nationwide prison strike has been bringing a lot of attention to how incarcerated Americans are disenfranchised since that's such a racialized group criminal justice so disproportionately targets Black Americans. It's a really effective way to suppress the Black vote. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the nationwide prison strikes demand to restore voting rights to incarcerated and formerly incarcerated Americans? So you can't see it because I'm behind a microphone, but I'm holding up my fingers and I'm snapping because I think that I'm so glad that they're striking for that right to vote to be restored. Because look, this is we need a restorative justice system. We do not need a retributive justice system. Somebody committed a crime for whatever reason and they went away and they served their time and now they're back out. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They served their time and they came back out. Restoring their right to vote is fundamental to allowing them to reparticipate in the society in the society they're still a part of. Because we when someone commits a crime, we, we treat them like they're always a criminal. And that's part of the problem too. We treat them like once a criminal, always a criminal. We never give people the ability to change. We never give them the opportunity to be reformed, to be restored. And we need to have a restorative justice system. There's a lot of reasons why the prison strike is going on. I'm fully in support of the prison strike. I actually listened to an incredible seminar with uh, DeRay McKesson, who is super interesting to listen to. Um, But he brought up some stuff that I didn't know about recently, which is that if he wants to email back and forth with prisoners... He has to buy a stamp, but he can't just buy one. He has to buy a digital book of stamps. And if he wants the other person to be able to respond, he has to buy that person a stamp, too. And 
in order to do that, this, the cost of the stamps vary based on the length of the email. We're also paying them less than minimum wage whenever they do any kind of work. Um, we charge them to have a card to use at the commissary and have an account open. We charge them, it's about a dollar for every two minutes that we have uh, for every phone call that they make. And we charge them for everything. We're fleecing people in prison. We're fleecing people who are incarcerated. These are people that are currently incarcerated that that can't just go get a better paying job because they're incarcerated. And then we fleece them for every cent that they're able to make if they're even able to make any. So when they get out, they have nothing. And we have put them in a position where they've worked their tails off while they were behind bars and they have nothing when they get out except a bus ticket and a directive to go somewhere else. That is horrible. Our justice system is incredibly broken and it disproportionately affects people of color, completely disproportionately affects people of color. I mean, you see it with with marijuana crimes or cannabis crimes. Um, The usage is the same among black and white communities, but young black men are incarcerated eight times more than young white men. This is a system that's designed to oppress people of color. And then when they get out after they've served their time, they're continually oppressed by having their ability to vote taken away from them. They are disadvantaged once they get out. They're disadvantaged going in. They're disadvantaged while they're in. They're disadvantaged when they get out. It is That is not restorative justice. That is continually repre- retributive justice that continues to repress entire communities for extended periods of time, for generations, so that they can't get out of that cycle. We need to have a restorative justice system that allows them every opportunity to break that cycle, not continually oppress them and keep them down. You are really hitting a lot. Sorry, of I get I get really passionate about no, this. No, this one. is great. This is great. It makes my job a bit easier. So, <laughs> would would you support allowing people to vote while in prison? That's a good question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. <laughs> ah, first time for everything. Yeah, first time for. I'm actually I'm reaching the point in my in my campaign where people are starting to ask me questions that I've never thought of before. That's a good question. Um, I would support having people be allowed to vote while they're still in prison because the fact remains that they're still American citizens. At the end of the day, when you're in prison, it doesn't negate your American citizenship. It is your it is your constitutionally granted right that you have the right to vote. This is universal. And being incarcerated doesn't when you are incarcerated, you're removed from society. And I actually think that that's not beneficial. And I understand the reason why. But I, I, I. I think it's not beneficial to people. And so having that ability to vote, it keeps them a part of society. It keeps them feeling like they're still connected to society in some way. And I think it's it's their right to vote. We shouldn't be taking that away from people when it's a right that's granted to them. But yeah, I could be in full, I could be in support of a bill like that. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, 
I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. This question is a bit longer, so bear with me. It's it's about prisons, but also abolishing ICE, which is something you support. Yep. So a big concern among activists, and I think a very valid one, is that abolish ICE is being hijacked by politicians, kind of like your incumbent, who really just mean replace ICE or still criminalize people of color and mm-hmm. undocumented people, but with a different agency. And I want to talk about two pieces that were published a few months back, one by the Black Youth Project, one by author... David Correa in Verso. Hope I'm pronouncing your name right, David, if you're listening. (laughs) Both about how the abolition of ICE isn't enough. I'm going to read a quick excerpt from the BYP piece, criticizing the calls to replace ICE rather than abolish it. Mm -hmm. Quote, sentiments like these fail to acknowledge that every facet of U.S. immigration policy is rooted in racial exclusion, dating back to the Page Act of 1875, and that the larger court system shares the same legacy of racist violence. They ignore that any charge of authoritarianism leveled at ICE can be applied to any other branch of law enforcement connections that immigrant activists who heralded the call to abolish ICE have fought hard to establish, end quote. This kind of reminds me of a tweet by Sean McElwee, who we've had on the podcast a few times. It goes something like, if you think ICE is bad, let me tell you about the police. (laughs) The point that's being made here is that ICE isn't like an aberration from the system. It's a perfect embodiment of the system. Yeah. And if we truly want to dismantle what we're condemning in ICE, the authors here are posing that we also need to abolish the police, prisons, and reshape how we consider criminal justice. What you're talking about, shifting from a carceral view to a restorative justice view. What are your Mm -hmm. thoughts on this? That is a really good series of questions. So I am very pro-abolish ICE um, and... uh, I'm very, very pro, uh, well, I'm very pro getting racial violence out of the police departments and getting racism out of the, out of police departments. Um, it's such a multifaceted, broad issue. Oh my God, I feel like I sound like such a politician right now. Um, <laughs> so I'll start with the part about abolish ICE and then I'll move into the part about police. So when we talk about abolish ICE, a lot, a lot of people that aren't deeply into the movement, that don't really understand what that means, all they hear is, oh no, there's going to be no kind of, of protection from illegal immigration. And here's the thing. Immigration is not illegal. It is not illegal to immigrate to the United States. It is not illegal to come to our country. We need to to uh, to decriminalize immigration. We need to end this idea that it's not legal for other people to come here and seek a better life for themselves. And prior to 2003, when ICE was incepted, my incumbent actually voted in favor of the establishment of ICE. Um, prior to that, local law enforcement was in charge of of enforcing immigration. That was local law enforcement. They they answered to the Department of Justice and they were held accountable for breaches of of what they of a uh, breaches of their duties. And having that oversight from the Department of Justice allowed us to have a humane response to um to immigration prior to a lot of the racial tension that's been growing um and a lot of the racism within the police departments that's come to light. And one of the other things that that we need to do is or we need to recognize is that immigration was handled under the Department of Labor. 
It was treated like, oh, we need to help these people find jobs. We got to help them figure out what their what visas they need. We got to help them figure out where we can place them, help them find work. That's the system we need to go back to. When you have local law enforcement in charge of enforcing immigration, when when they're answering to the Department of Justice, when you have the Department of Labor that's handling visas, that's handling helping people find meaningful work, uh, that's handling helping people communicate with families and do whatever they need to do, there isn't a need for ICE. There's no need. They're already a redundant facility. They're already extraneous. We already have them doing the jobs that are already being done. They just do it a lot more violently and a lot more racially charged. Um, they're just they're ineffective. Maybe post 9-11 for a little bit that we thought they were necessary. But the fact is, they're not. They are not necessary. And one of the number one problems, because I actually had this come up before in a panel interview where I said, you know, everything was ha- handled this way under the Department of Labor and with local law enforcement. So there was no need for the Department of Homeland Security and ICE and Crescent and Border Patrol. And my incumbent actually said, well, yeah, there is. It's because there was a communication issue. And, and the, the only reason the terrorists committed 9-11 is because uh, we didn't have communication between the departments. And the fact for, for me remains that that's not something we need ICE to handle. That's a communication issue. That's we need a better communication chain. We don't need an entire new federal department that's focused on tearing families apart and arresting teachers while they're trying to teach their classes and deporting them. That's taking dads to the airport in front of his weeping twin daughters and telling him he needs to get out of this country that he's known for 10, 20 years. Um, As far as the police go, This is a really contentious issue. So what we need is we need to totally reform how it is that we approach the idea of police. To me, police are community peacekeepers. They're meant to be stewards in the community who are responsible for who are responsible for safety, but who serve the community. They serve as they are. They act as servants of the community in peacekeeping efforts. And we've lost sight of that. One of the ways that I know 100 percent that we've lost sight of that is because we have militarized the hell out of the police um listen when you call the cops because you're you because you're like oh no i have to change or something happened i i uh i need to i need police here immediately they do not need to roll up on you in a bear cat they do not need to show up in a tank with a grenade launcher and full military outfit gear that they are not properly trained to use and when you set up the police to be so militarized, they become militarized against the community, not because of it. They're not at war with the community. They are meant to serve and protect us. They are not meant to lob grenades at us or enter our own homes and shoot us while we're on our laptop. They are That is not their job. We need to end militarization of the police. We need to end broken windows style policing. Um, We need to have community oversight boards that are mandated because right now a lot of people don't know this. If you want to have a community oversight board over your police department, the police union has to agree to it. If you want to hold the police accountable as a community, the police the police unions have to agree to let you hold them accountable. I'm going to let you reason through how effective that is in in some states. But If we have a federal mandate that requires a community oversight board, that's when they don't have a choice. They don't get to stack that board. That board should be democratically elected of members of the community who are specifically there to hold police departments accountable. We also need an entirely funded sub-department in the Department of Justice that independently investigates and prosecutes police officers. If there is any kind of civilian death or, or severe injury, we need a mandatory trial of your peers. It should be a mandatory jury trial. 
we should allow a, tri- a, a trial by jury so people's peers in the community get to decide if that police officer murdered someone or not. There shouldn't be two tiers of justice. There shouldn't be a backdoor justice system. The rules shouldn't be different for a police officer. If a, poli- if a police officer shoots an unarmed person, that police officer should be held just as accountable as if they didn't have a badge and a gun on them. There are a lot of opportunities that we have to turn our police forces around and fix a lot of this historic systemic violence and brutality. We have to start with pragmatic measures and we have to move forwards with pragmatic measures because they're meant to be stewards of the community, not not the army against the community. What role should police, if any, actually play? What exactly should they be doing that that is positive to communities. Honestly, one of the things I, I actually thought about this, I think one of the things that they should be doing is they should be focused on community outreach. Um, they should be focused on implementing and, and uh, being the people that administer uh, crime prevention programs. Um, I'd like to see a lot more community outreach from police in the forms of school programs. Um, invest in these communities. And we do that through, I mean, I said it already, but, you know, uh, prevention programs. So have them focused on things like going out and helping kind of like our military does helping out people on the side of the road change tires or car batteries Um, give them the ability to go help somebody out who needs help Um, have them in schools to come and talk to kids about crime prevention have them work on bullying prevention measures Uh, have them work to keep kids out of the school to prison pipeline they should be focused on outreach in the community and if they see a person committing a crime if they're called if they're called to the scene their first response shouldn't be I should draw my gun because I feel threatened their first response should be what are the circumstances that led this person to where they're at now we need to get better at de-escalation that should be number one first and foremost our police officers should be out in the community equipped with resources equipped with the ability to to help people that need certain programs so if they see a person who is mentally ill and who is struggling and becoming violent they should be equipped ready with resources on their phones who they can call and say hi this person needs help they are mentally ill they need somebody to help them where can i take them they shouldn't be focused on how can i throw this person in the back of my car how can i draw my gun and shoot this person they should be looking at at when they show up to crime scenes when they show when they're when they show up to calls they should be looking at the situation and assessing the situation on how can i help this person not have to be in this position again how can what resources do i have immediately available what is the protocol what is the training that i received to help this person find a bed tonight or to help this person get out of a domestic violence situation they have a lot of opportunity to be community stewards and not community fear mongers And do prisons have any place in a restorative justice system? I think it depends on how we utilize our prisons. That's a really big thing for me. So first and foremost, do for-profit prisons and private prisons have a place? Absolutely not. For-profit prisons and private prisons need to be completely eliminated from the equation. But our prison system can be used to house people who have committed a crime And they can also serve as facilities to help kind of do what the police do. How do we stop this person from having to come back here? What is it? What is it about this person's life that we can help them change while they're here? Help them get an education while they're there. Help them learn a skill. Help them learn a trade. Have these facilities be focused on building up that person's life so they don't have to ever come back rather than just throw them in jail and let them rot. We need to make sure that our prison, the prison system we have is reformed to focus 100 percent on what is it about this person's life? Was it what is it about this person's circumstance and how can we help them change that so they don't have to come back into this system ever again? 
So I, I kind of know a bit of this answer already, but I do want to <laughs> share it with our listeners. What are some other things that you think should be decriminalized? Oh, man, I'm so excited I, I like you the asked. answers to this already. <laughs> <laughs> so I talk about victimless crimes. Um, what, I, what I mean when I say victimless crimes is namely the one that, that pops into everybody's heads first and foremost is drug use, particularly with cannabis. Drug use, we can talk about it until... The sun rises in the West. Um, but the fact is, is it, when it comes down to it, is it is a public health crisis that we are picking people up and throwing them in cages for and telling them to get over it. And if you've ever had the experience of knowing someone or loving someone or being with someone who is an addict, you know it is not that easy. We need to decriminalize drug use so that when people go into rehabilitation, rehabilitative centers, when people seek help, they're able to actually and meaningfully seek help in a way that works for them and sets them up for long-term recovery. Um, as far as cannabis goes, come on. Most of America wants to legalize cannabis. Let's just do it. Let's stop playing this game and jerking everybody around and trying to act like it's horrible for us. We all know 100% that alcohol is infinitely worse for us than cannabis, and people are still getting arrested for possession of cannabis. It's ridiculous. Most Americans want to see it legalized. It's time that we legalize it. But another one that I don't think gets enough attention is I actually am in favor of legalizing and regulating sex work as well. I don't think this gets talked about enough, but I think when we're talking about legalizing cannabis, we should also be talking about federally legalizing sex work as well. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but women tend to get caught in a cycle of violence because they don't have any other option but to perform sex work. And when they're picked up, when they're arrested and they have a record, they can't get out of that of that profession even if they wanted to because now they have a record. Now they can't get hired. So they're trapped and they're trapped under the thumbs of people, of, of uh, pimps or whatever the correct terminology is. Um, they're trapped under the thumbs of these people who are abusive and who are exploitative and they don't have any other choice. But in states that have legalized it, like in Nevada, you see people have better qualities of life. Um, women are, are don't experience domestic violence. They are there are no more of these these ridiculous crimes that they're prosecuting women for. They can break out of the cycle if they want to get out of it. If they want to stay in it, they have the ability to stay in it. The fact of the matter remains that it is two consenting adults that are having sex. They are both consenting. And, you know, whether you pay them money for that service or not, they're agreeing to that service. But we are criminalizing it and we are hurting women and we're hurting men because they, too, are getting tickets for it. And it's two adults who are consenting to something that is perfectly legal in any other context. And it's also another way to fight against human trafficking, because part of the part of the problem is these girls that are brought into it are are trafficked from other countries and it's illegal and it's this whole seedy underground. And it's it, it's just it really is a, a horrible experience for them. But when it's legal, it makes it harder to traffic and it makes it easier to protect women. So legalizing sex work, legalizing le legalizing cannabis and decriminalizing drug use and addiction. Those are some of the number one ways that, that we can help fight against our retributive justice system. And how could a restorative justice system deal with problems that are actually systemic, not petty crimes, but things like corruption, like war? What? How, mm -hmm. how can we actually deal with that? How can we hold the people in power, honestly, in, in my eyes, including members of Congress, mm -hmm. accountable? That's a really awesome question. And again, 
one that I've never been asked because this is something I actually have sat down and thought about really hard. Um, accountability to me matters a lot. And that's actually been the number one name of the game for me. Since I started my campaign, every person that's come on board, I've asked them, how could you hold me accountable? What do you want to see from me to hold me accountable? Ele we've talked about elected officials should have community oversight. They should have open door community meetings with community leaders who can hold them accountable for votes, who can make them discuss their votes, who can make them explain their votes. Transparency in government is incredibly important. But as far as those who commit crimes, I mean, we can't have a two-tiered justice system. A restorative justice system requires that all people be treated equally under the law. And we need to end this ridiculous cash bail system we have that allows these wealthy white-collar criminals who arguably created more, who, who created worse living conditions and committed worse crimes than most people that are in prison, um, they get away. They get out. They get an ankle monitor. Um, they're able to buy really, really high-priced lawyers who are able to talk, who, who are able to talk them out of doing any kind of serving of any any kind of time. Um, we have a two-tier justice system for the rich. And the fact of the matter is, is we have to end the two-tier justice system. If they didn't have money, how would we prosecute them? That's how we need to be looking at this. If they did, if they weren't a millionaire, if they weren't a billionaire, how would we prosecute this? How would we proceed with this? But the people that caused the, the crash, the recession, which negatively impacted millennials to the point that we will never recover, um, those people need to be held accountable by a jury of their peers, by a jury of our peers. Quite frankly, they need to be held accountable to the people whose lives they ruined. And this is one of the key things I try to explain to people is a lot of these incumbents are coming out of the era of Democrats where they vote, they will vote to bail out the banks. But right now we need to enter the new era of Democrats where we vote to bail out the people. And the people that committed those crimes, the people that created worse conditions for us, they deserve to be prosecuted and held accountable to the people that they whose lives they ruined. Do you currently have like a town hall pledge to keep in touch with your constituents? What what promises can you make them so that they know you won't become like any other congressional representative? Sure. I, this is something that we actually have talked to ad nauseum. We still every day we have the conversation about what does accountability look like to the community? Um, we still have it with every organization that's endorsed us, with people that walk into the door. We, we're constantly asking how we can be held accountable because it's important. Uh, I've never been asked if I have a town hall pledge because in my head, of course I'm going to do town halls. That's like the job. Um, so I never even thought to make some kind of pledge. But, you know, I, I can pledge right now. I, I will pledge one town hall in a central location every quarter. Um, every three months, I want to host one town hall. I want to keep people updated. Um, I want to do regular videos de detailing important votes coming up or important votes that pass so people can have full understanding of my positions on these bills. And people don't have to wonder how I'm going to vote on things that are coming up. The only way you can inspire trust is by giving people a reason to trust you. And if you're fully prepared to have total transparency or as much transparency as the system allows with the people you're serving, that's how you're going to build up that trust. So I can pledge to uh, to have town halls quarterly every three months or every four months. Um, I can pledge to have regular town halls with people. And we also talked about how it is that we can use the office here in the district. So I will give commendation to my incumbent for something. He's actually, after 22 years, he's very, very good at responding to the community members that reach out to his office. We don't want to change that. We think that if something's not broken, it doesn't need to be fixed. And it's not broken. He's He's got one of the most responsive offices in, in Congress. And we want to keep that going. I would expect after 22 years, you've gotten really good at responding to constituents. But that's another story. Um, but we also have an opportunity to do more 
better with that office. And that's something we've talked about. We want to spearhead an initiative to set up a community outreach office that specifically works with helping organizations and nonprofits connect with each other and build coalitions. We want to help progressive groups. We want to help meaningful groups create these strong coalitions to fight for legislation locally, statewide, and federally that they really believe in. We also want to host regular trainings out of that office in order to help grassroots candidates, in order to help new candidates, anybody that's interested in running for office, help them find where they fit in the system. Because sometimes going through a candidate training, you realize, actually, I want to be a social media manager for a candidate. We want to give people that opportunity to connect with campaigns, to meet other people, to train up so that they can do those jobs. We want to make sure that we're empowering as many people to run for whatever office suits them the best as we possibly can. Um, We don't create the next generation of strong progressive voters by suppressing and isolating and hiding away from the next generation of strong progressive voters. We get that next generation by going to them and inviting them to our table and helping them learn how to sit at that table and talk at that table, helping them learn how to build their own table and how to build their own chairs and who belongs at it and and how to decide that. And that's what we want to do. We want to utilize the office for community outreach as much as we do just just responding to constituents. We can do more than just respond. We don't have to be reactive. We can be proactive. And lastly, shameless plug time. What can folks do to get involved in your campaign and support you? So much. Um, I'm going to do the number one thing that all grassroots campaigns do, and I'm going to beg for your money. Um, <laughs> you can go to votesarasmith.com slash donate if you want to make a donation. If you want to get involved elsewhere, because we are not just looking for for funding, we also need people. We need manpower all the time. Um We are always growing and needing more people for things. If you want a phone bank or make phone calls, you can go to votesarasmith.com slash call. We've made it very simple. You can call right from the comfort of your own home. We have people from all across the country that are doing phone calls for us, and we have a ton of numbers that we got to call. We also have text banking. So if you're able to come down to our office in Georgetown off of Airport Way, um, you can come on in and we can help you text bank. The other thing we really need people to do is we seriously need canvassers. door knocking, getting out there in the streets. We are we have 20,000 pieces of literature and my goal is to have all of them leave my office before the before the general election date. Um, but if you want to get involved, go to votesarasmith.com slash volunteer. I don't just need your dollars and cents. I need your sneakers and laces. Um, I need people's cell phones and keyboards. I need people who are able to do some of the, the hard, rote, repetitive grunt work and who are willing to fight and do whatever it takes to get this movement moving. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you you so much for coming on to the podcast obviously we went a bit longer than expected <laughs> sorry um, but I, no worries no i really enjoyed this conversation i think our listeners will as well and unsurprisingly i wish you the best of luck on your campaign <laughs> thank you so much i really appreciate the opportunity and everybody for listening thank you so much if you ever have questions please reach out to me and email me i'm always happy to offer clarifying points and speaking of reaching out You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen and make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.